Welcome back to Same Hair Man, the podcast that would just look so much prettier if it smiled. I'm Lucille Mills. I'm Marie Renee Katz. And today we're going to jump back into the world of profiting off of childhood. This is going to be part two to our part one of Kidfluencers, and I think we're going to call this one Revenge of the Mommy Blog. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Um, Before we jump in, let's do a little bit of housekeeping. After this episode releases, we are going to take a little breaky-poo. So we'll be be out of the picture for maybe three or four weeks. We have a bunch of stuff going on personally, and we want to come back with some really big topics that are going to take a little extra time to research. Yes. So you can look forward to that. Please write to us in the meantime because we will miss you. Yeah. If there's any topics you guys want us to look into, please send us an email. We love to hear your suggestions. Yes. I want to put a little warning on the content we're about to go into. We are going to be talking about some pretty unethical treatment of children. And in some cases, it can be really difficult to swallow. And there's not a lot of happy ending quick fix solutions. So Mm. if this is going to be like emotionally difficult to manage, feel free to consume this episode in small bites or not at all. Totally fine. Do you want to give us a little recap, Marie, on what we talked about last week? Last week, we talked about kidfluencers and the massive economy that comes with it. We talked about how kidfluencers are very profitable, not only for themselves, but also for all the adults involved in making their videos or part of their production. The other thing we talked about was how a lot of kidfluencers aren't covered by child labor laws, even child labor laws that were made specifically for young performers like actors and singers, a lot Mm -hmm. of those still don't cover kidfluencers. So this is a pretty big issue in my opinion. And as a topic as a whole, it makes us feel really weird. It's one of those things that just doesn't quite sit well with us, but it's hard to describe why. So if you haven't listened to our first episode, I highly encourage you to go listen to it. We talk through a lot of those weird feelings surrounding kidfluencers and kids being, you know, big media people. And today, what are we talking about more specifically today, Lou? We definitely parse through trying to figure out like why is this gross? What parts of it are making it feel gross? And Mm -hmm. today I want to put all of that into context so we're gonna we're gonna do a little history of the internet we're gonna figure out how the hell we got here the history of it i'm gonna frame as mommy blogging why do we move from that to kids being the main creators themselves Mm, and then we're gonna kind of dig into exactly why all of this sucks the most for the people who are most at the center of it which are Mm. you know usually children yeah and what we could do about that Let's do it. Uh, Let's get started with a little story time. And this is going to be my version of the story of the internet. Okay. The internet's childhood trauma. The main character is any new online platform. Pick your favorite, pick a generic one, fill in the blank. They're all going to kind of follow this pattern the same way, which is why it's so Mm -hmm. interesting. So a new novel platform arrives on the scene. It's a simple space, one that generates community. A lot of, you know, same here manning, if you will. (laughs) This community is really close-knit, it's really genuine, and because of that, it ends up attracting more like-minded followers. The platform generates more traffic, and eventually more traffic than can be reasonably kept up by the kind of business model that it started with. That business model could be any number of things. It could be started as a hobby by some coder, it could be angel investor-backed, you name it. And because of this traffic, 
a big shift needs to happen. Either we need to monetize the platform because we've run out of money to keep it going with how big it is now, or it's just going to kind of crash and burn. And the reason why that decision is such a big deal is because the shift to monetizing the platform in any way, there are a bunch of different ways to monetize a platform, right? Mm -hmm. Results in a ton of backlash, mostly because of change, but also because once you Mm. introduce money and profiting off of something that felt really genuine, it feels gross and people feel betrayed by that, right? It does, yeah. So it's kind of seen as slimy or manipulative or like, how dare you take away this pure, beautiful thing that we had? Backlash (laughs) ensues, people leave the platform or boycott it or complain or whatever, revenue falls as a result of that, and the platform implodes. Mm, That sounds very familiar. Right? And then everybody goes to whatever the new novel platform is. This is what I have outlined as the skeleton of the internet. You could slap any old face onto it and it'll probably make sense. That's very true. We see it happening with Facebook right now, right? Yeah. It feels really relevant. It gets too big to handle and then it just blows up. Exactly. It gets too big because it's working really well. And in order Mm -hmm. to keep up something that big, you have to introduce some kind of revenue. Because someone's like, oh, this is really big. I want to spend all my time doing it. And if I'm going to do that, I need to be able to support myself somehow. So the way I'm going to introduce that is something that's going to piss a lot of people off. And it eventually just doesn't go well. Yeah, and I think what attracts people to some of the newer platforms in the first place is the fact that they aren't being advertised to as much. Or there's less people Mm -hmm. on the platform and it's very intimate and close-knit. It tips over the point of sustainability really quickly. And they're... There's almost no returning from that. So yeah. I want us to keep that in mind, that it's it's an irreversible pattern. Hmm. The first example of the storyline that I can think of on the internet is blogging. And hmm. we're going to kind of pick apart why blogging was such a big deal, because it's really hard for us to imagine yeah. thinking of the way that we consume media now via podcasts and TikTok and YouTube. Like, yeah. you can consume it kind of mindlessly. Like, I can listen to a podcast while I'm doing dishes. Consuming something like a blog, something text-based – is not the same way that we interact with media today. That's very true. And and like that that blow up couldn't happen again now. It just couldn't. We're not going to go yeah. back to that point in time. Like I can't see that happening in the foreseeable future right now. Yeah. So because it's so hard to understand in the current context, especially if you're younger than Gen X, you know, it's really hard to think of why this was such a big deal. So we're going to map out exactly how big of a deal it was because it's it's really unbelievable how freaking massive the blogosphere was and then we're gonna mm. talk about how it imploded and then what what it looks like when the people who were doing really well on it jump ship okay do you have any thoughts on mommy blogging like growing up did you ever interact with them or have any exposure to them give me the timeline of marie's life on the internet So I wasn't really allowed to interact with the internet until like late middle school. Eighth grade is when I was allowed to make a Facebook account. Mm -hmm. And that was like all the rage at the time. Whereas I feel like today's kids aren't as interested in Facebook at all. (laughs) So, but yeah, at the time it was very small and um, it was just all your friends getting on the internet and posting funny things after school. And it was kind of like a place to hang out without actually Mm -hmm. having to hang out. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it was really fun. Um, But that is the first place I remember ever interacting with a blog, specifically like mommy blogs. I remember seeing older like friends of mine on Facebook posting like their birth story or Mm. or talking about miscarriage grief um which Mm, was like a mm -hmm. big one that I saw a lot 
in mommy blogs at the time. Yeah. And so that was kind of my first and only interaction with mommy blogging was on Facebook in this kind of very narrow window of time. To make it an analog to today, a teenager making a Facebook account now would feel as foreign and dated as you interacting with a blog would have been at that point in time. (laughs) Like it is that far a relic already. And by now it is straight up a fossil of the internet. If you look at a classic mommy blog now, most of the really bigger ones are retired at this point, and mm-hmm. for good reason, like, you know, scandal ensues, or you can't you can't keep up a public persona for long enough without something happening. Or your kids grow up and you no longer have content. Keep that in mind. That is very, very relevant later. Okay. If you look at them now, the walls of text that they used to be, they just, they look really dated. And there's yeah. a reason why that looks really dated. Let's just put it in context with like other platforms as well. Some of the bigger blogs launched before Huffington Post, before YouTube, before Tumblr. Wow. So these are like OG internet heavy hitters. Yeah. And it blew up Jeez. really fast and really hard. And then it, it crashed just as fast. Hmm. Blogging became a thing kind of in the late 90s. By 2004, blog was the Merriam-Webster word of the year, which is always wow. a fun little artifact to look at for me. Yeah. By 2006, there were over 50 million blogs, which is wow huge. It's hard to think of the size of something online because it's all just kind of a flat landscape. But that right. is more blogs than if every person in the whole state of California was a blogger. That is huge. Right? Yeah. And then within a year, by February of 2007, a new blog is being created every second. Wow. Massive. Like, I can't understate how just saturated the internet was with blogs because anyone could start one. You know, it's just, it's a diary. Everybody has a day. Everybody has thoughts. And you just kind of dump them somewhere. And some of them get really successful and some of them just live on the internet forever. You know, that's crazy. There are a lot of academic readings on blogs now because it was such a short, brief time period, but with such a huge social impact. What I want to hone in on on blogging is mommy blogging in particular. And the reason I want to look at mommy blogging as kind of the representative sample of blogging is I feel like mommy blogs and mommy bloggers took a big fall for the fall of the blogging industry as a whole. Interesting. Monetization equaling to villainous undermining of something that's pure and good and wholesome. Like, it's really easy to see how that fits with our current stereotypes of the mommy blogger personality of someone like kind of slimy and manipulative it's all wrapped up in misogyny and a a bunch of other just social constructs of how we view women making money off of their home life you know so yeah we don't need to dig into all of that messiness there's a lot of scholarly work that's been done on that already and Mm -hmm. we're obviously more interested in the impact of the children yeah that makes sense it's so hard to put into words just how giant of a fucking deal it was. It created an online Mm -hmm. community for topics that weren't really previously discussed in public. And you pointed to some of that talking about Hmm. like Facebook posts of bloggers talking about really heavy things like miscarriage. That is a great example because mommy blogging created a space run by moms and for moms and between moms hmm. in a way that just didn't exist before and doesn't super exist now. Yeah, that's a good point. It's a really big deal. And it creates a space for women to validate experiences in 
ways that other parts of society refuse to. It's really hard to get medical validation for really Mm -hmm. difficult things. And it's really hard to get social validation within structures like schools or churches where mothers are constantly given standards that they're supposed to live up to. Yeah. This was a space where women and mothers actually came together and were able to create forums of their own kind where they set their own standards and, and kind of grieved over the same things together. That was a huge deal. Yeah, and I feel like it kind of created a safe space for, like you said, for women to talk about things that, like, aren't necessarily okay to talk about in just regular conversation. I hate to say it, but people tend to not want to hear about other people's grief or their personal things or how rough their labor was. It's just not socially encouraged. And so I feel like mommy blogging gave people a space to have those conversations and to read other people's thoughts on it. In an area that was yeah, safe. That's that's a big um, part of it. In a way that just didn't exist exactly. outside of that. Before the early 2000s, most of the topics published by these women were just not a part of public discourse. Like, they just weren't. No one talked about breastfeeding in public. No one talked yeah. about toddler meltdowns. No one talked True. about postpartum depression. The few central resources that did exist were very mainstream feeling. They were like television shows or parenting magazines or Mm. books. It's not a place where you can engage with other people consuming the same material. Yeah. A lot of them don't feel realistic or authentic. And mommy blogging didn't just create a space. It created a standardized space that people could go back to again and again. And they Hmm. did. Mommy bloggers blew up and had super loyal followings for that very reason. They were raw. They were open. And that kind of like low production value content where it's just text, it doesn't exist in a way that we know the internet today at all. I think there's something really cool about women saying, hey, there's like a lot that's going on in our lives and in our bodies that no one's talking about. Yeah, like quote unquote experts even. Yeah. And so they were like, okay, let's just make our own community. Let's make our own platform to talk about this. That's really cool. And I think part of what contributed to the immense popularity of it is that there's something much more intimate about reading like an individual person's experience versus a very generic description of the female experience in like a magazine or TV. Exactly. Here's a little quote from an academic article. I'm not going to read all of it because it's it's very academic sounding, which isn't really the content of our podcast. And the reason I like podcasting is because it's not academia. <laughs> um, this author goes even a little step further to be like, it's more than just having a place to write that authentic experience. It's also the engagement. This is by someone named Amy Morrison. It has a really long academic-sounding title. I will link it in the notes for anyone who likes reading these kinds of things. So she says mommy blogging is marked by direct emotional reciprocity, as in the exchange, between participants. It creates Mm -hmm. strong bonds of trust and support that bloggers characterize as a meaningful friendship within a community. In practice, most personal mommy blog authors are also committed blog readers and frequent commenters. And their alternations between those roles of being a reader and a commenter and an author create a non-hierarchy, a tightly woven web of interconnection. And that interconnection is marked by mutual and intimate self-disclosure. And I think I'm just going to cut it off there because that really drives home to me. This isn't just someone writing a really raw article in a mother magazine. It's also that author engaging with other people's work and commenting back and forth. Having a comment section on someone's diary 
is a game changer. Yeah, that's really cool, but also terrifying. <laughs> right? We, we don't super have that now. Like, comment sections are like no man's land. Yeah. Now, let's talk about what changed. <laughs> why did this super big, super unique, very much needed invention, why did it, why did it go away? Yeah. So a really big shift that happened was the addition of pictures and other forms of media to blogging platforms. Because before that, blogs yeah. were just walls of text, you know? And to yeah. get engaged in a wall of text, you have to kind of be a, a frequent reader because a, a wall of text of a really raw, sad story looks the same as a wall of text of a really funny story. That's very true. That contributed in large part to the really loyal followings and to regular readers and regular content. And once you add yeah. photography into that, with the introduction of like Instagram and Flickr and just more powerful web hosting services in general, multimedia became the way of the blogging future. Yeah. And that's kind of more of the mommy blog that I remember interacting with when I was first like getting into Facebook and stuff like that. Like I remember the quintessential mommy blogger was somebody who also takes really aesthetic pictures of their kids mm -hmm. and of their home. There was a shift from content that was a little more messy and raw and honest and, you know, relatable to other moms to how good can I make my motherhood look? Yes. It was a shift to kind of selling a lifestyle or not necessarily selling a lifestyle, but at least promoting a certain lifestyle. And then it shifted to absolutely selling a lifestyle. Yes. <laughs> exactly. You basically just read my next paragraph. That was perfect. Oops. You nailed it. For a wall of text, you, you have to really engage with it in order to know what you're getting out of it and to, to develop a feeling about it. Pictures aren't like that. Yeah, pictures and videos let you make a very quick snap judgment as to whether you're interested in mm -hmm. that topic or not. Yeah, it takes a lot more loyalty. Aesthetic becomes a huge deal here. Yes. And therefore in lies the problem, right? So <laughs> it becomes really mm -hmm. clear where the line is going to come from the introduction of pictures and aestheticism to mommy bloggers to where we get now, where kids are content. But I do want to very quickly mention... This shift from writing out the genuine experience of motherhood to a very curated, aesthetic, professionally photographed one, we can't ignore religion. And it sounds really weird and counterintuitive mm. for me to say this because mommy blogging is kind of a relic now to most of yeah. us and I, I imagine most of our listeners. But a huge portion of mommy bloggers were specifically Christian and Mormon mommy bloggers. And hmm. that being a huge percentage of it means I kind of have to bring it up a little bit. Mormon mommy yeah. blogs were the biggest bridge between the raw confessional early 2000s mommy blog and the clean, crisp lifestyle influencer that we see today. And it's not intuitive which is why I think I have yeah. to bring it up because it's not something I was going to hold in the back of my mind as we go through this journey. Instead of telling you everything I found about that topic, I'm just going to read you a little quote from the New York Times parenting column. Okay. This is an article written in 2019. So after the rise and fall Fairly of recent. the mommy blogger. Yeah, exactly. To overlook the influence of Mormon and other Christian mommy bloggers on this shift would be a huge oversight. Mormon mommy bloggers in particular were enormously influential in establishing the aesthetic and tone that came to characterize mm. influencer-era online motherhood. 
Mormonism encourages the careful documentation of family life, and Mormon mothers were among blogging's earliest and most enthusiastic adopters. Unlike the confessional early mommy blogs, Mormon mothers' blogs broadcast a clean and chipper version of motherhood, replete with DIY crafting projects and coordinated family photo shoots. Many of the most successful Mormon bloggers from the mid-aughts, like Amber Fillerup Clark and Naomi Davis, went on to become mainstream lifestyle bloggers. And although their Mormon hmm. faith is no secret, its prominence receded as the years passed. Interesting. If you know of any Mormon values within the Church of the Latter-day Saints, motherhood is held in very high regard, and oftentimes mothers aren't supposed to work. They're supposed to be fully dedicated to the home. Right, right. That lent itself very well to mommy blogging, which is why I think these two are so yeah. linked, even though we don't often think of that. Yeah. Long story short, these like aspirational posts are way more marketable than confessional posts. What do you mean by that? So confessional post meaning, like, my toddler had a breakdown and I locked myself in the closet and ate a Snickers bar. <laughs> Versus aspirational post of, look how clean my white granite countertops are and oh, we went Christmas yeah. tree chopping and look how cute my children are. Look how well behaved they are in this one photo I got of them smiling and laughing and doing the activity they're supposed to be doing. Precisely. Can you see how one of those types of posts is clearly much more marketable than the other? Oh, Yeah. I mean, and it also, I think it depends on who your target audience is. Like you said, when mommy blogging first started, it wasn't meant to be something that's marketed to a large group of people. It was meant to be something that was more a small, intimate community of other people also participating in that community. Exactly. Whereas when we think of it today, you're trying to get this to as many people as possible and make it marketable to the largest audience you possibly can. So I definitely see how the more aesthetic and put-together mommy blogger would be more successful in today's internet economy than someone who's, yeah, like you said, more confessional posts, exactly. like my toddler had a tantrum. That also requires erasing parts of your identity in a way. Like the mm. end of this quote, Mormon faith is no secret, but its prominence receded as the years passed. In order to reach a larger audience, you have to become kind of a more generic version of yourself. That's true. And when you when a lot of your content is Mormon or Christian or just specific to any religion in general, you do tend to limit your audience to people of that religion. Whereas if it's something that's kind of like everyone knows I'm Mormon, but it's not what my content is about, you open your audience to other people outside of that religion. Exactly. Yeah. So you focus on becoming much more generic and much more approachable to a bigger audience. The exception to this mm -hmm. rule is when you can incorporate those unique traits to be your aesthetic. There's also a huge component of race involved with mommy blogging and the rise hmm. and fall of mommy blogging and the influencer economy that we know today. Oh, yeah. So when you think of mommy blogger, you think of white suburban affluent mother who has time on her hands and beautiful blue-eyed children. 100%. Very much a stereotype for a reason, and that reason is because that was a huge chunk of that economy. The mommy blogging economy is yeah. largely white, largely affluent, largely female. I definitely think of a white woman when I think of a mommy blogger. Yeah. <laughs> it reminds me of the Bo Burnham song, White Woman's Instagram. Yes. <laughs> Just add baby teddy bear onesie. Exactly. There's definitely a very strong racial element to this economic ecosystem. Yeah. The most successful mommy bloggers and momfluencers on and YouTube families, they're they're overwhelmingly white. The only time when mommy bloggers and influencers 
don't have to make themselves more generic is when they can incorporate something as part of their aesthetic. So black mommy Hmm. bloggers are frequently put in a spot where they have to write or speak about their blackness in ways that audience would never expect from a stereotypical white suburban mommy blogger. That's a good point. Yeah. Blackness and being black adjacent is also fetishized in children, which is just gross. Oh, what do you mean by that? Like, Unfortunately, Marie, I have examples prepared for you. There's an Instagram account with over a quarter million followers. Yeah. That's, it's just called Beautiful Mixed Kids. What? That's so... I can't make this shit up. It's highly photogenic pictures of young children. And underneath the pictures are uh, the parents' ethnicities and races listed below each picture. Like... A pedigree. Huh. Yeah, that's really weird. Like, I have some screenshots to send you. Okay, send me this. I'm ready for it. So can you tell me what you're looking at? I don't know. I mean, it's just weird. One of them in the bio says, DMs only, in parentheses, clear pictures, include name, age, and mix, ages newborn to 13 years, features not promised. There are a lot of followers here, and there are a lot of people sending pictures of their children to this account run by some stranger we don't know. Yeah. And it's just asking for pictures of mixed children, which is gross. Like, we don't call people mixed. That's nasty. These people are multiracial. You don't ask for the mix of – like, it's just – it's like talking about a dog breed. Yeah. In order to engage with this weird influencer economy, you either have to make yourself as generic as possible to appeal to a very wide array – Or you have to tap into the part of your identity that you can aestheticize. And it's really dehumanizing. It is. Yeah. Because you're making the interesting trait about that person just the race they happen to be born. And it's only interesting because it's not whiteness. That's the biggest issue here. Hmm. This is a really relevant surface level example of how race and the assumption of whiteness kind of coats this whole industry and... That's not the substance of this episode, but I definitely wanted to include it because that's a component of this conversation. Okay. How the industry actively harms and passively ignores children is our focus today, but I would be remiss to not mention how inequitable the industry as it exists now is in terms of race. Yeah. Black and brown mommy bloggers are less likely to be offered as many or as lucrative sponsorship deals without performing a certain aesthetic. And that aesthetic, we can pretty clearly read as code for more white, affluent, suburban, HGTV, Chip and Joanna Gaines aesthetic. Mm, Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Shiplap. Lots of shiplap. Shiplap. Pompous grass. Macrame. Don't forget the macrame. It's me. It's my house I'm describing. (laughs) Shit. So those are the two really important factors to this industry that, like, I don't want to make this episode about race and I don't want to make this episode about religion those two things have a huge influence on this industry and this economy. And with those two things in mind, I just want that to be like in the background, in the back of our brains as we move forward. Let's pivot to the part that we're really here for, which is that there are actual kids driving this content. This is a viral Reddit post that blew up a couple years ago. I'm going to send it to you. Ooh, I'm excited. And this particular thread was submitted to a forum called Am I the Asshole? And it's a place where people can share their stories and then ask the, you know, anonymous audience to vote, basically. Were you the asshole in the situation or are you not the asshole in the situation? Yeah. It's kind of like, who's right? Am I right or is this person who's pissing me off right? Yeah. So the title says, 
A-I-T-A, which means am I the asshole. My mom is an influencer. I'm so sick of being a part of it. Wow. Okay. This is crazy. Right? So basically, this kid is saying they have very clearly told their mom that they do not want to be in photos. They don't want to be used as content for the blog slash Instagram. And the mom just straight up doesn't respect that boundary. Nope. So the kid, being creative, um, ordered hoodies that say, basically, don't take pictures of me. I do not consent to photos being taken of me. So that way, if the mom does it anyways, it's very clear to the audience that the child did not consent. And the Mm -hmm. mom is mad about it. And this user, the kid, is asking, am I the asshole? To answer your question, you are not the asshole. Overwhelmingly, I I will add, the audience voted that this person is not the asshole. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, give a gold star to the internet for this day two years ago. Based on how long these comments are, people feel very passionately for what this person is saying. Mm Mm-hmm. Kids can't really consent to everything that comes along with being internet famous because they might just Mm -hmm. straight up not understand it. What's even more sinister about this, though, is that this kid, not only do they understand exactly what's going on, they are actively not consenting. They are actively saying, I do not want to be a part of this. And the mom is Mm -hmm. saying, too bad, so sad. It's gross, right? It's really gross. Some of her replies point out other things that she wrote on the hoodie, including, like, my body is my own. Mm. And the mom is really disturbed by that because it sounds sexual or rapey. Oh. And the daughter's really defensive about this. She's like, I understand that my mom feels feels bad about it and I, I don't want her to take it that way. I want her to take it in good faith. Mm-hmm. And so despite this, the the daughter is still trying to see her mom in a good light. Yeah. When I, as a reader, I, as someone who feels pretty strongly about this industry by this point, I... I say power to that kid. Like, like, no, it should be taken as seriously as something sexual. It should be taken as seriously as some kind of bodily violation because it is. Yeah. And here's the thing. If the mom is, like, really that concerned about how this hoodie looks to others, even when, you know, take the internet out of the picture. Like, let's say you're just going to, like, an event and the kid has this hoodie on. If the mom is really that concerned about it, the solution is, Respect your kids' boundaries when they're saying no. When they're saying don't take pictures of me verbally, respect that so that they don't have to get a hoodie to deter you from doing it anyways. It seems like such an easy solution if if the mom is really that concerned about appearances. Just respect your kid. It's that simple. The fact that all of the commenters came out to support the original poster is Mm -hmm. really heartwarming to me. And so I'm going to come back to that throughout the episode whenever I feel gross to remember, like, there are a lot of people who feel the same way we do. (laughs) So that's nice. You know, there's hope out there. Um, I'm going to cling to that very tightly. There are a bunch of people writing in Solidarity that, like, surely there are more interesting things to her than just being a mom. Like, she can go do anything else. This is an active choice that the mother is making. Yeah. And to have to rely on your minor-aged children for – such a large part of life, just seems like a Mm. recipe for disaster. And I think part of it is born from the age-old concept surrounding women that the most important thing a woman can ever do with her life is be a mother. And I don't want to take that away from anyone. If you you feel like the most important thing you've done is be a mother, that is incredible and power to you. But 
That's not how mm-hmm. everyone feels. And you are capable of doing things other than motherhood. The mom seems to have tied those th- two things together in a way that forces her daughter to participate, which isn't fair to anybody. Yeah. This is an article in the Washington Post. I'm also going to link it in our show notes. It's called, My Daughter Asked Me to Stop Writing About Motherhood. Here's Why I Can't Do That. This was posted in 2019, so it seems too recent (laughs) to be having this kind of thought. But okay, go off, I guess, Christine. This is the most epic Christmas ever, my fourth grade daughter proclaimed from behind the new laptop we gifted her. After three years of her begging for a phone, tablet, or computer... We capitulated with a basic laptop complete with parental controls. We envisioned it primarily as a tool for schoolwork and learning how to use a keyboard. Based on her enthusiasm level, she envisioned it as a tool for binge-watching her favorite videos and for keeping up with Zac Efron's love life. It felt novel to soak in her gratitude and unallowed joy. That lasted almost 14 hours. The day after Christmas, she hunkered down to explore her laptop. First stop, an internet-wide search on my name. Second stop, a furious march to my room, where she thrust the shiny new device in my face. What's all this? She said. The screen was covered with thumbnail sketches of her as a baby, a toddler, and a preschooler, each paired with an essay or blog post I'd written on the subject of parenting. Why are all these pictures of me on the internet? She wanted to know, and she had a right to know. Years ago, when I began publishing essays and submitting family pictures to editors, I considered the day my children would confront me about what I'd written. (laughs) Wait, so she saw this coming and just did it anyways? (laughs) It gets worse. At the time, I'd read articles by parents of older children who were weighing the ethics of using their children's stories or pictures for essay material. My kids were too young to care about what I shared about how they ate, how little they slept, or how their taste in clothes was terrible. (laughs) Rude. I know, so rude. You're the one buying their clothes. That's such a point. (laughs) What a weird thing to roast a kid on. Like, oh, you have a terrible sense of fashion that I bought for you. (laughs) Your kid's gonna read this. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I remember thinking that one day I would have to answer for my work. Yet when that day finally arrived, I had no response prepared. It shows. In the moment, I stammered, trying to buy time so I could go back and read what those sage parents had advised. When that failed, I told her the truth, that I write about our family in essays that sometimes I include a picture. She was not comforted. I wouldn't do that now without your permission, I promised. Could I take the essays and pictures off the internet, she wanted to know. I told her that was not possible. There was a heavy sighing and a slammed door. When I had pictured our first serious conversation about how the internet is forever, I always thought we'd be talking about content posted by her, not me. Interesting. Dun, she's dun, like, dun. she's like, could I delete these posts? Absolutely, but the internet's forever, so I'm just not going to. Yeah. Also, that <laughs> just the straight up lie is really disturbing here. Yeah. There are just multiple layers of wrong yeah. within these just what three sentences. Yeah. So easy to just delete your old posts that your kid and probably isn't driving traffic anymore. That's the other thing I've never understood when people get all wrapped up about deleting old posts because they're problematic. It's like, well, you're making most of your current money on new content. You've already made your money off of that. So why do you care? Right. At the very least, It would have been a nice gesture just to repair some level of trust. But no, like even that would have been too much. Yeah. Her justification gets really gross. Heads up. Okay. 
So she says, I read through some of my old pieces and none of them seemed embarrassing to me, though she might not agree. A few years ago, I wrote about a disappointment in her social life. A girl she counted as her best friend abruptly stopped talking to her. <gasps> While I wrote about the experience from a perspective of a mother trying to help her daughter through a rough patch without succumbing to anti-girl stereotypes about so-called mean girls. Wow. Okay, that's something we talked about in our last episode, the concept of parents deeming something as, you know, oh, this is very innocent, it's not embarrassing. If you see a kid, you know, crying in public, you're not like, wow, how embarrassing for that kid. But that kid seeing videos or posts about mm -hmm. that incident in the future regarding themselves, that mm -hmm. could be very embarrassing for that older kid to experience mm -hmm. in ways that we as adults don't understand that. We are going to dig really deep into that idea soon. Cool. Because I actually had a very similar experience in childhood where a girl I considered to be my best friend stopped talking to me. And it was Same. truly one of the most traumatic experiences in my life. And I know that sounds really dramatic. I, I mean, I've been through other shit and that still sits at the top of my trauma list. <laughs> Even if other worse things happened, at that age, that could have been the biggest thing you've ever experienced. Exactly. I cannot imagine how absolutely mortified I would be if my mom wrote a detailed essay about our conversation surrounding that and how she had to help me through it and all the emotions I was going through. I mean, how terrible. Mm -hmm. Here's how easy it could have been. Hey, daughter. I think this would be really good content for my blog. I think other people could benefit from hearing your story and hearing how we talked through it. Is it okay if I post this? The kid says no. Easy enough. You don't post it. If the kid says yes, yes. then post it with the mindset of I'm doing this to have other people potentially benefit from it. Very reasonable suggestion there, Marie, of how to fix this problem. Um, she responds to that suggestion in the next couple paragraphs, and you're going to lose your fucking mind. Oh, no. Okay. So I'll continue reading. My impulse is to promise her I'll never write about her again. Which she already did. <laughs> yeah, right? that's true. She it straight up said, like, I won't do that without asking you. She said yeah. that. Two paragraphs before, she says, I wouldn't do that now without your permission. Said it. It sounds like you're going to do it without her permission. <laughs> My impulse is to promise her that I'll never write about her again. In most of the articles I found on this subject, the writers eventually gave up writing about their children when they reached a certain age. They stopped to protect their children's privacy, or as Darlena Kunha explained, to salvage their desire for such privacy so that as they become adults, there is something there to preserve at all. I respect that approach and understand why it works for many writers, but it's not a promise I can make. <laughs> <laughs> I fucking can't. <laughs> oh my gosh. Certainly, my daughter is old enough now that I owe her a heads up and a veto right on the pictures or portions of the content. But I am not done exploring my motherhood in my writing, and sometimes my story will be inextricably linked to her experiences. Promising not to write about her anymore would mean shutting down a vital part of myself, which isn't necessarily good for me or her. So my plan is to chart a middle course, where together we negotiate the boundaries of the stories I write and the images I include. This will entail hard conversations and compromises, but I prefer the hard work of charting the middle course to giving up altogether, an impulse that comes in part from the cultural pressure for mothers to be endlessly self-sacrificing on behalf of their children. Oh my gosh. 
As a mother, I am not supposed to do anything that upsets my children or makes them uncomfortable, certainly not for something as culturally devalued as my own creative labor. It's my own creative uh, labor. Uh, <laughs> it's not the That's not. <laughs> Dude, this whole paragraph is like, I didn't expect my daughter to be such a misogynist. I know. <laughs> what the fuck? Doesn't my daughter understand this is actually about women's rights? Good God. Like, what are you teaching your daughter about her own? Okay. Yeah, anyway. about the autonomy of her own body. Like, Dude. continuing on, writer Christine Oregon has described how, quote, we seem to be creating this unrealistic image of the mother as all-giving, all-knowing, selfless, superhuman who will gladly give up the last piece of apple pie to please her lip-smacking, big-eyed child. <laughs> Surely there's a way to cut the pie so that I can write about motherhood in a way that takes into account my daughter's feelings and respects her boundaries. That statement, I agree with. Yeah. I have a feeling she's not going to do it the right way. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. Yeah. But also, like... If you're sure about that, why haven't you been doing it the whole time? Yeah. <laughs> My daughter didn't ask to have a rider for a mother, but that's who I am. <laughs> Amputating parts of my experience feels as abusive to our relationship as writing about her without any consideration for her feelings and privacy. Okay. Right? <laughs> Telling me to stop is just as bad as me continuing to do it. What the fuck? Way to frame it so there's no solution. Yeah. No one's telling you to stop writing. She's just saying, don't do it without my consent and don't post right? embarrassing shit about me. Super the idea reasonable. of being a writer and being like, if I can't write about this one thing, I can't write at all is just such a chicken shit excuse. People write about their relationships without writing about their relationships all the fucking time. Totally. And she can still write about motherhood as an experience and even give parenting tips if that's what she's into without going into specifics about her children and what they are going through. She can just make it more broad. And I feel like her daughter would be fine with that. I mean, I don't know her daughter, but that at least seems like a step one for me in the right direction that she's not even willing to do. Mm -hmm. For now, we have agreed that I will not submit a picture for publication without her permission and that she has absolute veto rights on any image of herself. Well, that's good. As for content, I have agreed to describe to her what I am writing about in advance of publication and to keep the facts that involve her to a minimum. I have not yet promised that she can edit my work, but we acknowledge that this is a future possibility. She also requests that instead of using her name, I call her by her self-selected pseudonym, Rochelle, and I am taking that under advisement. One thing I did unequivocally say, however, was that I won't write anything mean about Zac Efron. <laughs> That's a promise I intend to keep. <laughs> I can't think of a more shallow, condescending way to end this article. Oh my gosh. I promise I won't write anything mean about Zac Efron. Ha ha. Yeah. Just, it really highlights to me how seriously she's taking this entire That's thing. That's true. It really trivializes what this daughter is going through. I couldn't help but laugh because it was so ridiculous. Yeah. So this article did not go over well. Um, the internet no then shit. proceeded to dogpile on top of it. I love the internet sometimes. <laughs> so this was written like days after that article was published. Oh, okay. And it says, it's clear that Tate, the author of the article that you just read through, doesn't think she has much to apologize for. Quote, I read through some of my old pieces and none of them seemed that embarrassing to me, though my daughter might not agree, she writes. <laughs> she goes on to mention another piece in the Washington Post about a time that her daughter's best friend ended their relationship with a note. 
In that piece, she defends her daughter's friend for ending things, quote, needing space to explore other friendships, end quote. And she writes that her daughter's, quote, way of loving might be overwhelming. Oh, my like, gosh. Like, she said that about her daughter. What the In fuck? the Washington Post. I can't imagine oh if I were trying to have a conversation with my parent in good faith yeah. and be comforted about something really difficult. And then not only is that conversation in good faith plastered across the internet, it's plastered across the internet in a way that makes me look like the idiot as yeah. the daughter. And it was done without the daughter's knowledge or consent. All of that. Layers of issues here. This quote goes on to say that must have been pretty hurtful for her daughter to read. Yeah. And on the shallow skim of her various other personal blogs, I easily found entries about her kids pooping, their crusty boogers, and their own hurt feelings over various family slights. Wow. She's also working on a memoir. Oh, no. (laughs) So this quote to me was a beautiful thing to pull out because, one, I didn't have to actually skim through all of Christy Tate's stuff because I really didn't want to after reading that first one. Yeah. It also just highlights how incredibly small of a picture she gave in order to, like, really paint herself in the best light after her daughter reacted pretty reasonably to seeing all of this bullshit about her life plastered across the internet. The kid's in fourth grade at this point and has... A bunch of her life left to live under this parent. How do you go forward when that kind of trust has been broken? Yeah. And I can't imagine having all of that kind of content out there and then just discovering it all after Christmas. To come home and say, you know, like, hey, my friend did this. It really hurt me. And your mom says, what if you just loved them too much? And it was too overwhelming or whatever it was they said. That would be that would be incredibly shitty. hurtful. And then to yeah. have it posted on the internet where all of your peers and future employers can access this information, I mean, mm-hmm. how demoralizing. And then for your mom to say, no, I can't stop doing this because I make a living doing it. And if I don't do this, then I can't buy you toys or whatever. <sighs> are we getting kind of a, a perspective on the, the shitty ways that this impacts kids? I think we are. <laughs> yes, very much so. I think about how this compares to our previous episode of Kidfluencers, and it almost seems worse because yeah. in one situation, the kid is getting to create their own content. And they're aware of it. Yes. And in some cases, they really enjoy it, and that's mm-hmm. cool. But in this situation, not only was the daughter not aware and not participating, she was actively not enjoying the fact that this was being mm-hmm. done. Those are two very different things. That is a huge difference. And then once you do learn it exists, you have to question your entire existence, basically. Yeah. It reminds me of how in the Tooth Fairy episode, you said you had that moment of realization once you figured out Santa wasn't real and that was earth shattering for you. And you're Mm -hmm. like, I can never go back to the bliss of not knowing again. Mm -hmm. Imagine if it's not just some fantastic story that comes around once a year, but the entire way that you view your caregivers. Yeah. All the interactions you had with your caregivers is now going to be seen through a completely different light. Yeah, and you can't you can't undo that. Yeah. Going forward, we're going to refer to this as sharenting, which is like if I didn't put it on the internet, I didn't do it, and that includes oh. my children. Wow. So it's all of those things together. In the Kidfluencer world, in our last episode, you talked about how the target audience is usually young children of a similar age or mm-hmm. families with similarly aged children. But mm-hmm. mommy blogging and parent influencers and people who engage in sharenting, those posts are different. Right. It usually targets 
mothers in particular who have a lot of like I don't want to call it downtime. It's like pseudo downtime when yeah. you're rocking a kid to sleep or like trying to soothe a teething baby or nursing. Mm. So there are a lot of activities that require a mother, but are some of the very few precious quiet moments when moms can sit and check their phones. Right. Those are the moments when this kind of content is targeting the audience where mm. a mom is often tapped out and this is the first time they've gotten to go on their phone all day and their baby's finally quiet and sometimes mm -hmm. it's the middle of the night. And these are really vulnerable moments to compare yourself to another mom, especially yeah. a really aesthetically pleasing one. Yeah. And what better time is there to be selling gimmicky products or workshops or anything guaranteed to fix like one of these issues? Yeah, right? I could see how it would be very validating to see a post from another parent who's also going through the same thing you're going through and you're like, hey, I'm not alone. Oh, and they're also recommending this product that can fix the very issue that I'm going through and it's worked mm -hmm. for them. And I feel a personal connection to them because I see that they're human and they're going through the same things I'm going through. And so mm -hmm. I can trust them. Or worse, like, God, their house is so clean and I want to be like them. Oh, they use this thing. If I use this thing, maybe I can get my life to look a little bit more like that. Yeah, exactly. It is really important to keep in mind, like, that is the audience. It is a vulnerable, marketable group of people. Mm -hmm. So keeping that in mind, I have found so, so much written material online about how the world that used to be mommy blogging that has now gone to this sharenting influencer, it's changed for the worse and that there isn't really a space for new moms to find solids or community. Mm -hmm. And I don't doubt this shift being true. We can map that pretty clearly. Mm -hmm. What I see far less of a conversation around is these children are not unfeeling ingredients in a recipe on a cooking blog and they're not just like a song recommendation or something like these kids who are the content of all of this material are growing people yeah and they are going to look back and they're going to realize that their parents were engaging with them in a way so as to curate a specific image for total strangers that's very true. Very huge difference between yeah. mommy blogging of old and printing pictures at the Macy's photo kiosk <laughs> to send to your grandparents. Like very, very, very different. Oh my gosh. So let's recap where we are. We've talked about the history of the internet. We talked about the rise and fall of mommy blogging. And we talked about the shift from mommy blogging to sharenting and mm -hmm. all of the ways that it creates this really awful, nasty divide between kids and their parents and how it's a much bigger, deeper feeling betrayal than just learning that Santa Claus isn't real. Yeah. And so the way that those kids grow up and engage with the same quote-unquote industry that their parents are is kind of a mystery. Here's an article from the Chicago Tribune that's kind of interested in that as far as the, the dissipation of mommy blogging. But again, this is like a rare example where the kids were even mentioned and I don't think it mentions them enough. Oh my. So it says, Another reason some mom blogs disappeared. The kids got older. Moms who had babies and started blogging more than a decade ago now have children who are old enough to be aware of and mm. object to what their mothers share about them. Yeah. And these mothers may be more circumspect about chronicling what could be said to be some of the most awkward years of a child's life. People mm. age out of mommy blogging, says Laura Tremaine, who used to blog at Hollywood Housewife. <laughs> When your kid gets to be too old, you want to protect your kid. 
maybe the kid is a teenager now and he's not so into his poop story being shared all over the world. Yeah. (laughs) What I love about this is like the mom recognizes there's a problem, but only cares when the kid's old enough to talk about it. Yeah. Like that is super weird. And it comes up again. Elizabeth Bastos stopped blogging about her children after her father raised concerns over a post about her son's first signs of puberty. Oh, God. She says, I've written extensively, intimately, damningly about my children for seven years without once thinking about it from the point of view of their feelings and their privacy. What? You're like admitting that you never considered your child's feelings? Yes. She wrote, if I'm going to continue writing, I realize I need to find some new material. Some bloggers who got in at the right time moved on to book contracts in the speaking circuit, but the next generation of mom bloggers didn't materialize. Hmm. So this article, like, recognizes that kids are a big part of it, but the kids aren't the characters that this article cares about. Right. It's This article's like, where did the mommy bloggers go? It's a weird take, right? It is. It does seem to recognize that this content is not sustainable. I mean, if you want to make a career of being someone who talks about motherhood of a young child, how are you not aware that only lasts as long as your child's childhood? My favorite part about this article is that, like, it comes so close (laughs) to pointing out exactly what's going on. It just feels gross to me. Because, first Mm. of all, like, I disagree. I think just because it's no longer in the form of blogging doesn't mean that parents aren't still wildly benefiting from their children's lack of consent in the online era. It's just changed. Like you said, with Coogan's Law and with the COPA lawsuits. Yeah, when natural outside restrictions cause something like mommy blogging to end, it doesn't end it altogether. It just changes Mm -hmm. the way it has to be done. Secondly, why is the whole tone of this article as if it's the aging kid's fault that mommy blogging falls apart (laughs) as an industry? That's so true. If these kids just wouldn't grow up, it would have been fine. (laughs) If they just like wouldn't care about their puberty, the most embarrassing part of adolescence being public, then we'd all just be so much better for it. It's so close to recognizing what was wrong with the whole model in the first place. Yeah. But it gets so oddly sentimental about the mommy blogging part of it. Hmm. The concerns come when the kids grow up, but no one takes like one extra step to wonder maybe these concerns were still very much applicable three years ago when the kids were young. Exactly. Yeah, like with Christine Tate's post, I mean, she's now running into issues with her daughter not wanting her to post things or her daughter wanting her to delete old posts. That is, whether or not it's justified, going to affect her income. And she could have avoided that in the first place if she had just considered her daughter's feelings from the beginning. Mm-hmm. The shift begins when, oh shit, we have to take kids seriously. Mm. Can we agree that that's kind of the tipping point? Yeah. Both in the Chicago Tribune article that realizes like, oh, that's when mommy blogging dies is once we have to start taking the children seriously. It's the problem that Christy Tate is trying to bring up of like, oh, I'm trying to take my daughter seriously, but then I can't keep doing the things I wanted to do. Yeah. Even all the way back to the Reddit post, the Am I the Asshole post, the issue is – when do we start taking the kids seriously? Yeah. That is the line I've been trying to establish through all of these examples. Yeah. That is the problem with mommy blogging is it works until 
something, whether it's the kids' behaviors or societal expectations or the fall of any kind of internet balloon, when do you start taking these kids seriously? And that is the mm. tipping point. Yeah. And why the hell is this stuff popular? Why does this gain traction? And we're we're going to attack the entire genre of content of mommy blogging and kids going viral and all of this, this entire universe <laughs> from okay. a consumer angle. Oh. I'm going to share a really challenging idea that I came across. And my reaction to reading about this was I got really defensive. And I'm curious what you will make of it. And I'm curious mm. what our listeners will think of this. And I think the defensiveness is a really important emotion that we should pay attention to. Yeah. Okay. Labeling and perceiving children's actions as cute is harmful. Adult investment in cuteness is harmful. Huh. I'm gonna I'm gonna dive into why this belief might actually hold a lot more water than we think it does, and why I think it's actually really important to wrestle with. Okay. So there's a writer and a prolific educator on this matter named John Holt. Most of his work originates in the 1970s, which I find interesting. That's an era that we keep coming back to. It marked a shift mm -hmm. in how children are seen and reared. Like if you remember child-centered parenting and parentification are both concepts that came up in the same time period. So I find that Hmm. Really interesting. Like, a lot of these shifts in the way that we view children are happening at the same time, and I think that's important. Okay. I'm going to read some passages from one of his books. He wrote several. And some fundamental things to understand in his philosophy, just on, like, diving into it, taking it at face value, trying to understand his argument, are these. So, one, seeing children as cute is based on condescension or adult superiority, mm. power over a subjugated child, and sentimentality, which I think we tie nostalgia to a lot. Yeah. And the sentimentality that he talks about is is flawed for the same reasons that nostalgia and innocence are flawed, because they create, like, a fantasy that we care more about sometimes than reality. Okay. Leaping to the, like, oh, how cute, is not what he would call an authentic reaction. The only way that I was able to listen to some of these arguments was through his examples. I think that helped a lot. So let's hear a couple of stories that he writes and maybe a little theory and then another story. Oh, I'm ready. He says, one afternoon, I was with several hundred people in an auditorium of a junior college when we heard outside the building the passionate wail of a small child. Almost everyone smiled, chuckled, or laughed. Perhaps there is something hmm. legitimately comic in the fact that one child should, without even trying, <laughs> be able to interrupt the supposedly important thoughts and words of all these adults. Like, that's really valid. But yeah. beyond this, there was something else. The belief that the feelings, the pains, the passions of children were not real and not to be taken seriously. Because if we had heard outside the building the voice of an adult crying in pain or anger or sorrow, we definitely would not have smiled or laughed. We would have been frozen in wonder and terror. Most of the mm -hmm. time, when it's not an unwanted distraction or a nuisance, the crying of children strikes us as funny. We think, there they go again. Isn't it something about the way that children cry? They cry about almost anything. Ha ha. But there, hmm. there's nothing funny about children crying. Until the child has learned from adults to exploit the childishness or cuteness or whatever for attention, a small child doesn't cry for trivial reasons. They cry out of need or fear or pain. Yeah. That's the first example. Okay. What are your thoughts to that? 
it is a good example of how we don't take kid emotions as seriously, mm-hmm. even though they're just as big and just as important. And oftentimes, the kid is reacting that way because it might be the first time they've ever experienced that thing. Totally. To us, we're like, oh, I've experienced falling down and scraping my knee so many times, it's just not a thing to cry about anymore. Mm -hmm. But when it's the first time you've fallen down and scraped your knee and maybe seen yourself bleed. That's a big deal. Yeah, that could be a lot more traumatic to the child. Yeah. I guess I agree with the analysis and the idea of not treating child emotions as trivial and not treating children as if they're lesser or being condescending to children. I just don't necessarily see the tie-in with cuteness. The reason I brought this up is because it ties in really strongly to that idea of I can mommy blog and I can share it all I want until I have to take the child seriously. Mm. Keep that in mind as we go forward as well. Gotcha. Another story. Once, coming into an airport, I saw just ahead of me a girl of about seven or eight. Hurrying up the carpeted ramp, she tripped and fell down. She didn't hurt herself, but she quickly picked herself up and walked on. Looking around on everyone's faces, I saw indulgent smiles, expressions of, isn't that cute? They wouldn't Hmm. have thought it was funny or cute if an adult had fallen down, but they would have been worried about, like, his pain or his embarrassment. that's interesting. That's a distinction that most of us don't sit and think about very often. I'm going to read a little bit of his philosophy now that we've kind of read the way that he looks at these situations and the way he tries to sit back and think about why do we react this way. Okay. He writes, The trouble with sentimentality and the reason why it always leads to callousness and cruelty is that it's abstract and unreal. And when I read this passage, I thought a lot about our nostalgia argument or our innocence argument. Mm -hmm. We look at the lives and concerns and troubles of children as if we might look at actors on a stage. It's a comedy, as long as it doesn't become a nuisance. And so, since their feelings and their pain are neither serious nor real, any pain that we may cause them isn't real either. In any conflict of interest with us, they must give way. Only our needs are real. Thus, when an adult wants, for his own pleasure, to hug and kiss a child for whom his embrace is unpleasant or terrifying, I definitely remember being made to hug adults that I didn't want to hug. Yeah, same. We easily say that the child's unreal feelings don't count. It's only the adult's real needs that count. People who Hmm. treat children like living dolls when they're feeling good may treat them like unliving dolls, also known as uh, will ignore consent entirely, when they're feeling bad. Even in those happy families in which the children aren't jealous of each other and they aren't competing for a scarce supply of attention and approval, but are more or less good friends, they don't think of each other as cute. And they're not sentimental about other children who are littler than they are. Yeah. Bigger children and happy families may be very tender and careful towards the little ones. But such older children do not tell themselves and wouldn't believe stories about the purity and the goodness of the smaller child. <laughs> yeah. They know very well that the young child is littler, clumsier, more ignorant, more in need of help, and much of the time more unreasonable and more troublesome because <laughs> they're small. Hmm. Because children don't really think of each other as cute, they often seem to be harder on one another than we think we would be. They're blunt and unsparing. I definitely can think of a lot of examples of kids being super blunt, right? (laughs) They just don't care. (laughs) But on the whole, this frankness, which accepts the other as a complete person, even if not altogether admired, is less harmful to the children in the way that many adults deal with them. Much of what we respond to in children as cute 
isn't strength or virtue or real or imagined, but weakness, a quality which gives us power over them or helps us to feel superior. And thus we think they're cute partly because they're little. What's cute about being little? Children understand this very well. They're not sentimental about their own littleness. They would rather be big than little, and they want to get big as soon as they can. Hmm. I think that those are a lot of really relevant thoughts to this industry, and I wanted to hear what you thought about it. I think where he says cuteness, I would replace it with trivializing someone's experiences. Mm -hmm. And I think we often equate something being trivial to something being cute. Yeah. And that comes back to, like, the ending of the of Christy Tate's article. Like, I promise they won't write anything bad about Zac yes, Efron. Yes, that was very trivializing. <laughs> so I can totally bad. see how John Holt might write, like, that was a cutesy ending. Yeah. You know, yeah. like, I – so cuteness isn't the issue. I think cute is a word that he's using to stand in for, like, like the default mode of trivializing. Yeah. And – Maybe that's the word he chooses because his subject matter is kids. Yeah. It's not to say that we shouldn't see kids as cute or that seeing kids as cute is, like, the worst thing that we could possibly do to them. Mm -hmm. Like, that is far from the truth. And I'm not going to go in this podcast and be like, seeing kids as cute is violent. (laughs) Don't come for me. Yeah. Um, And tying it back to Sharenting and the momosphere and kidfluencers and profitable childhoods in general, we do this to kids more often than we do it to adults. And there's a reason why we do it. And it it sucks, you know, yeah. <laughs> like the, these behaviors suck. We wouldn't do them to fully functioning or however we take people seriously, humans, you know? Yeah. And it requires that. Like if we took kids seriously the whole time, this industry probably wouldn't exist. Oh, totally. This industry requires suspension of disbelief when it comes to mm-hmm. like kids have feelings and emotions and have their own thoughts and are capable of expressing them. We have to kind mm-hmm. of push that thought out of our minds to even begin to consume or produce mommy blogger type content. 100%. Well put, my dude. Thanks, my dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all of this, like you just said, all of this rests on our need to see kids as like, ah, we know better than them. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. isn't it silly when kids do XYZ? By the way, they're wearing H&M and you can buy it here. <laughs> The last example that John Holt wrote, I'm going to read like a third story of his. He says, Today in the Boston Public Garden, I watched, as I often do, some infants who were just learning to walk. I used to think their clumsiness, their uncertain balance in their wandering course were cute. Now I tried to watch in maybe a different spirit. For there's nothing cute about clumsiness any more than littleness. And again, like his his mm. word for cuteness, we might put something else. There's nothing trivial. Mm-hmm. Any adult who found it as hard to walk as a small child and who did it so badly would be severely handicapped. And again, like, remember, this is written in the 70s. Mm-hmm. We would certainly not smile, chuckle, and laugh at his efforts and congratulate ourselves for doing so. Watching the children, I thought of this, and I reminded myself, as I often do when I see a very small child intent and absorbed in what he's doing, mm-hmm. and I'm tempted to think of him as cute, that child isn't trying to be cute. He doesn't see himself as cute, and he doesn't want to be seen as cute. He is as serious about what he is doing now as any human being can be, and he wants to be taken seriously. Mm. But there's something very appealing and exciting about watching children just learning to walk. I super agree with him there. Like, have you ever seen a kid take their first steps? It's magical. Yeah. They do it so badly. It is so (laughs) clearly difficult. And in the child's terms, it may even be dangerous. We know that it won't hurt for the kid to fall down. 
but the kid can't be sure of that and in any case doesn't like falling down. Hmm. <laughs> Most adults, even many older children, would instantly stop trying to do anything that they did as badly as a new walker does his walking. But the infant keeps on. He is so determined, he is working so hard, and he is so excited. His learning to walk is not just an effort and a struggle, but also a joyous adventure. As I watch this adventure, no less a miracle because we all did it, I try to respond to the child's determination, courage, and pleasure, not his littleness, his feebleness, and his incompetence. To whatever voice in me says, oh, wouldn't it be nice to pick up that dear little child and give him a big hug and a kiss, I reply, no, 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 that child doesn't want to be picked up or hugged or kissed. He wants to walk. Hmm. <laughs> Duh. Like, he doesn't know or care whether I like it or not. He isn't walking for the approval or the happiness of me or even for his parents, but for himself. It's his show. Hmm. Don't try to turn him into an actor in your show. Leave him alone to get on with his work. That's a good point. But on the other hand, I would say kids absolutely do do things with the intention of receiving praise from their caregivers. Yes, they do. So I like what he said about celebrating their determination rather than the cuteness of how funny it might look when they fall on their butt. I think the difference here is John Holt recognizes the kid isn't trying to be cute. Hmm. That's the biggest point I want to drive home here is the, the line of seriousness – dictates how long we can take advantage of kids as content without them knowing or without them approving or without them having a say in the matter. And then kids, as kidfluencers, they have more of a say over what they're doing and they're doing it for certain feedback or certain approval and they are performing a certain kind of affect to get a reaction from an anonymous audience and sometimes an audience of millions. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times kids are being posted like they're not trying to be cute. They're not trying to get a reaction of like, oh, look at them. Sometimes kids are genuinely having a hard-ass time. Yeah. And adults are able to spread that content like wildfire and be like, ah, look at how cute this is, when mm. it's super not fucking cute. Yeah, like that reminds me, did you see that video I sent you on Instagram yes. with the little girl throwing the cup? Yeah, it was so fucking disturbing. I sent Lou this video that I saw on Instagram, and I didn't know this was a thing, but apparently when it's really, really cold outside, like freezing temperatures, if you go outside with a cup of water and throw it into the air, it'll basically like freeze in the air and come down as snow. And so this mm -hmm. family was trying to do that with their two little daughters. And the older daughter and the younger daughter and the dad are all holding cups. And then the mom is filming, presumably. Mm -hmm. The dad's like, okay, go, throw it. And the oldest daughter just throws the entire cup instead of just, like, tossing the water into the air. Mm -hmm. The cup breaks. Yeah, the parents start, like, cackling, as I probably would have if that was my kid. And they're like, no, 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 we meant throw the water, not the cup. And the little girl just, like, breaks down sobbing. Total meltdown. Total meltdown. She, like, immediately goes up to the dad and she's like, oh, I'm sorry. Like, you told me to throw it. Like, she clearly recognizes she did not the thing that she was being asked to do and got very distressed when she figured out that, like, she I did the wrong so thing. She was so embarrassed. So embarrassed. And she immediately hid behind her dad because she didn't want to be filmed. Yeah. And they kept on filming, first of all, and laughing, second of all. And then they went on to do the rest of the video where they throw the water in the air or whatever. Mm -hmm. And the whole time, 
that the first kid is having this total breakdown and is trying to explain away her feelings and is trying to be heard and no one's listening to her. The other thing that kind of broke my heart was she's trying to like justify to her parents why she thought they meant throw the whole cup. She's like, you said to throw it. It feels very much so like she's trying to explain like, this was my thought process. I'm not an idiot. And it was a really interesting video specifically to this topic because the parents weren't mad at her at all. They were laughing. They thought it was funny. They got a kick out of it. And it's easy from an outside perspective to look at that and be like, why is she getting so upset? It's not like she was in trouble. Like, but Mm -hmm. she clearly recognized like, oh, I did the wrong thing. It's being filmed. I'm really embarrassed. I'm really upset. I feel like I was told the wrong instructions or not given enough Mm -hmm. instructions. And now people are laughing at me. And it's going to be viral. And no one's listening to me. Exactly. That video is so hard to watch. And I think where we say the parents got a kick out of it and like a lot of people would be laughing at the situation because it's just so silly. Mm -hmm. That's the the cuteness issue Mm -hmm. that I think John Holt is trying to drive home Exactly. And it reminded me a lot of experiences that I had that were similar to that as a kid that I still remember. Yeah, same. I think a lot of kid stuff gets written off as, oh, they're not going to remember this. But then you have freaks like mm-hmm. me who, like, remember pooping <laughs> in the diapers. Yeah, so you can't count on your kids not remembering their embarrassing stuff because you might end yeah. up with one of them who's like me and remembers everything. And then does a podcast. And then does a podcast where they talk about it. (laughs) I don't agree with everything John Holt writes. And a lot of it, like, triggered a lot of defensiveness in me because of his word choice. I had to, like, remind myself, this was written in the 70s. (laughs) This is a really revolutionary idea. And I know I won't be alone in that reaction. But I think the reason the influencer economy works so well, the reason why a video like that goes viral is because when it revolves around childhood and we are addicted to this this sense of like, oh, that's so funny. Oh, like we can really enjoy this. When the kid's clearly not having a good time, that's an issue. And I think that's what John Holt is trying to outline here. He very painstakingly tries to label it cuteness. And maybe there's a better word for that now. Mm -hmm. But that is a reason why this economy works. Totally. There's an entire universe of media around this. And it stops us from seeing kids how they actually are yeah if children learn everything that they know from observing the world around them from observing adults around them how are they supposed to learn about themselves when we refuse to see them authentically Hmm. how is a kid supposed to learn what's authentic when their distress is entertaining yeah that's a good point do you remember the um the viral jimmy kimmel i ate your halloween candy prank in 2017 oh wow i totally forgot about that but is it basically just where like parents would film their kids and say i ate your halloween candy and get their reaction mm-hmm. and then dozens of children having total meltdowns were plastered across oh my the internet and national I television i hated those videos and that meltdown was caused by parents just totally lying yeah. to them and like getting a kick out of it i could even see like parents i know now defending this as something totally innocent and harmless mm-hmm. In a vacuum, I doubt that anybody would be okay with me walking up and being like, hey, we should lie to your kids until they have a meltdown so we can film it and share it with total strangers. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) In no world would me saying that be okay, but like Jimmy Kimmel did it and then everyone did it and it was fine. I've always hated those videos where people will 
give their kid a present and then it's like an iPhone box and then they open the box and it's actually like socks in it. There's a huge following for like pranking your kids. Yeah. There are YouTube families who do that and monetize and get tons of ad revenue for it. Um, One family went so far as to do it until Child Protective Services got involved and they lost (gasps) custody of their children. What? I have not heard of that. Yeah, some of this shit just straight up is not cute. I just sent Mm. you three different Instagram posts and accounts. This is, again, in the vein of sharing Yeah. So the first one is a little girl in her car seat. It's a picture, and she's just mid-scream, like eyes closed, head thrown back, mouth wide open. And the caption says, parenting is easy. And then the red face emoji with the little, like, cuss word over the mouth. I told her she had to be buckled at no exceptions. I'm such an asshole parent. Just, like, isn't really interesting content, to be honest with you. That too. I don't know. This doesn't offer support for other parents who are going through the same thing. It doesn't offer advice. It doesn't offer interesting content. It just feels like someone complaining about how shitty their kid is. Yeah. And that feels gross. What role does this content serve And the only role I can think of it filling is bullying. Yeah. Like, if someone else posted this of your kid with that same caption, it would be straight up bullying. And, like, I'd be so pissed if somebody took a picture of it and put it on the internet to be like, haha, isn't this funny? Yeah. We go out of the way all the time to say, this isn't a parenting podcast, or we're not going to tell you how to raise your kids. But, like, just please don't do this. Here's the thing. I never want to tell parents, like, what to do, but I do feel comfortable being like, it's easy to just not do this yeah yeah you can omit the many steps it took to get here my kids having a meltdown i am going to dig my phone out of my bag open instagram take a photo write a caption post it engage in the comments like (laughs) this Mm -hmm. is a multi-step decision and all of them are bad (laughs) exactly and i think for some people the purpose it serves is feeling heard Because parenting is hard sometimes. And I think people find it beneficial when they can go to someone or the public and say, I'm going through this and it's hard. Yep. There's a huge difference between I had a hard time getting my kid to cooperate today and I'm really tired and look at my stupid kid crying. Like those are two super different things. (laughs) Because one is kid-centered and one is self-centered. And listen, we're asking you to be self-centered in this one area. Like, if you need to talk about your own experience parenting, do it. Power to you. You can do that without embarrassing the child. What? No. Kids experience the world in a way that is very novel to adults, and we often Mm -hmm. forget and are disconnected from how novel everything is. And kids oftentimes remind us of that, and sometimes it is really entertaining to remember, like, oh, yeah. That was a big deal. How silly. Yeah. That shouldn't always translate to like, I am going to use this on my Instagram. <laughs> like that's right. that's the issue that I think we're trying to highlight here is there's a weird <laughs> gap that adults are taking advantage of where kids aren't aware that they're being posted of, aren't aware that their parents aren't taking them seriously, or maybe they are, I don't know, and have mm-hmm. no power over what their parents are doing on the internet when it has everything to do with the kids. And then when the kids grow up and the chickens come home to roost and the parents have to deal with it, there's a lot of conflict that ensues. And that conflict could have been mitigated way earlier if we thought about how we view children, if we took children's experiences seriously, and if there wasn't a ton of money to be made off of it. 
yeah. not ours to reason why, but it is ours to point out, like, maybe it's weird and maybe we should talk about yeah. it more. The only close comparison that we have so far to what these systems will do to children, and you brought it up in the last episode, is child stars in the film industry. And that example is, like, so far from promising. It is – we've seen kids be totally destroyed by that. So the oh, fact yeah. that that's the closest analog we have to this, and it's not good – it's what the fuck are we doing not talking about it more it's easy to find moms being like everyone else is just a hater and if mm -hmm. that's easy to find like that means that there's a lot of criticism and pushback happening on this maybe the hopeful part is that we're just a couple of steps away from more self-awareness that gives mm -hmm. me a little bit of hope that's a little bit of a happy ending for me but yeah. in the meantime there are a ton of children who are in the process of growing up and getting ever closer every day to the moment when they have to deal with however they feel after they see that their parents live streamed their toilet training. Mm, that your mom yeah. wrote all about your first breakup. Or that your dad vlogged some weird-ass prank at your expense for likes and ad revenue to total strangers. What I want to leave this two-parter with is, like, is it worth it? It's not. <laughs> I don't think it is. I don't think it is either. There are people who are going to listen to this and say, well, we can't just make it all illegal. Um, my argument back to that is why not? France did it. <laughs> In France, children can sue their parents for posting content of them online without consent. What? Mm -hmm. Interesting. And their economy hasn't fallen apart because of it. So, <laughs> Is it like the kids, when they grow up, they can sue the parents? Or at what age can you sue your parents uh, for this? The suing litigation part of it, I didn't dig too far into because I know the legal system in France is different from the legal system I am familiar with. Gotcha. But in France, parents can actually be fined or um, imprisoned for posting content of their children online without consent. Interesting. So um, that is actually super possible <laughs> and i do want to yeah. point out that like even though this seems like a really big impossible problem to deal with because of how giant it is i think it's really important to remember that the right to do whatever you want with your kid isn't just some universal truth that we all agree on it changes all the time and it yeah. can change it probably should change and that gives me hope that it it can I don't have any same hair man questions prepared because this has taken way too long. Um, and anybody who has actually listened all the way through to this point, thank you. We love you. We see you. We know that you guys are from many countries at this point, And we are stoked about it. Every time we see a new country pop up on our listening list, we're like, what? Makes us very happy. It is just so lovely. And we love you and we find you all very cute. <laughs> So, yeah, we'll see you guys in a few weeks. We will miss you dearly in the meantime. Um, Marie will be starting a really exciting new job, and Mr. Mills and yeah. I will be investigating new places to live, and I will be officiating a wedding. So exciting things are happening. We have some really cool topics lined up, including some heavy hitters like corporal punishment and the rise of gentle parenting. So stay tuned mm -hmm. for those bad boys. And if you guys want to write in your same here man questions or topics or share your thoughts to us, we would love to hear from you. You can contact us in the show notes or you can send us an email at samehearmanpod at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at samehearmanpod. From there, you can find Lou and I on Twitter. Until next time. Uh, don't throw the cup when you're trying to just throw the water. <laughs> <laughs> Go eat all of your kids' Halloween candy and be honest about it.
My stupid daughter doesn't like it when I call her stupid on my stupid blog.